Coming up on Civil War Talk Radio, more on naval strategies and technology with Jim Jenke and John Willis when we return. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey Internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm John Willis. With me today is Dr. Jim Jackie. Thank you again for joining us, Jim. Glad to be here. We've been talking about the Union blockade of the Confederacy and how life was lived by those folks out on Blockade Station. It was a lot of money to be made. You were just telling us about the prize money that sailors, even sailors could get some of this money, couldn't they? Right. Everybody on board got something. And given what their pay was, oftentimes these uh, prize amounts amounted to several years' pay. So you definitely wanted to be uh, able to spot a ship and chase it down and bring it into port. Oh, very much. How How often were these blockaders able to chase and capture a, a blockade runner? Well, actually, not very often. In fact... Uh, I thought it was all good news. It just doesn't sound No. <laughs> it's kind of like a lottery, <laughs> very much. Uh, it's, um, I'm sure some of the blockaders never caught anything. And maybe if you caught uh, one a year, particularly toward the end there, that you, you might have been lucky. But you figure several years' salary for just a few hours' work was pretty good. It would feel like a lottery, wouldn't it? Oh, yes. Um very much so. Well, most of these ocean-going vessels were a combination of sail and steam, weren't they? And, and they're mostly wooden vessels. It was the age of uh, steam coming in. There was a transition period, yes. And there was also a transition in terms of the covering of these vessels. Right. The, uh, this is the age of the ironclad now. This is the war where the ironclad makes its entry. Yes, and I think uh, people ought to realize that... Uh, uh, even though we talk about ironclads in the Civil War, cladding a ship with iron was not, you know, the innovation itself, because this was being done in a number of places. What wasn't known is how effective they would be. Sure. Here here you got to see them in action. Here, which first time, mm-hmm. 
you got to see them in action. Both ironclad versus wooden ship and ironclad versus ironclad. That had never been done before. How did they make these ironclads? Did they make them from scratch, or did they adapt them from other vessels? Well, it, it varied. In the uh, the north, uh, I guess you'd have to make a distinction here between uh, the river ones and the um, the ocean-going ones, or the or the harbor defense. Uh, in the very early days of the war, the Union would buy a steamboat, and, you know, and clad it with iron. Uh, pretty ugly vessels. And when you say clad it, are these iron sheets or are these strips of iron? Well, they're, they're usually bars, uh, say like uh, 10, 12 feet long, maybe uh, two inches thick and a foot wide, and they put them on in layers. Um, the um, Union also built ships from scratch, and the Monitor was a good example of this. Uh, both sides are building ironclads frantically. Uh, part of the, the Confederacy had as their strategy a recognition that there was no way they could match the Union ship to ship. And, and they really didn't have to because they weren't going to try to conquer the North. They just wanted to keep the North from blocking them in. But they were going to go for innovation. They realized ironclad could be one of the ways to do that. And the North recognizing, well, if the Confederates are going to be building ironclads, we have to build ironclads too. So they were very much in a race with each other. The Union had the resources that, well, just given enough time, they could turn their shipyards into building ironclads. And um, they, they did that. The monitor is a good example. But uh, that wasn't the only one they were working on. They were trying a number of prototypes. Nobody knew. Nobody knew what would be the best type. So there were... When you say that the types, um, what were some of the differences between these prototypes that you were okay. working on? Uh, the monitor was, was quite an innovation. It was quite different from the other ones. The other ones more or less looked like ordinary sailing ships, but but they had iron on them. Uh, the Galena and the new iron sites, for example, are, were being built at the same time the USS Monitor was being built. But the monitor was really quite different from the other ones. A very low-lying ship with a turret in which it had its cannons. The others were broadside vessels, that uh, there were cannons and broadside. That monitor had this, this um, combination of various factors that uh, made it a quite a unique vessel. Uh, the turret would be able to turn. It didn't matter which way the ship was pointing. If you're in broadside, you got to change the position of the ship to use the cannons in particular directions. So the, the Union was working on all these at the same time. The, the Confederacy took advantage of this Norfolk Navy Yard that you mentioned earlier. One of the ships that had been scuttled by the Union when it left was the uh, Merrimack, a fairly new frigate, a steam frigate that was... Uh, in the, the Navy Yard because it had inadequate engines. And the Confederates raised that, and, uh, well, here's the use of the word raised again, but the different word, cut it down one deck, cut into a water line, and built an iron casemate on top over a very thick superstructure of wood. And then they put ten cannons in there. Uh, the Monitor had two cannons in its turret. And both sides were aware of what the other one was doing. I think this is why it appeals to me as a storyteller. What, what a great script. It's an erase for time. Right, and you, you know how the other side is doing. You know how the other side is doing. You know they're getting close. Uh, secrets were not too well kept in the Civil War. If you wanted to find out what the Union was doing, all you had to get was a Yankee paper, and they'd take That's right. Just read about it. Yep. Maybe you'd see a drawing, too. Yes. I think it, it, it seems fair to say that the monitor that the Union was constructing broke so many of the usual expectations about a naval vessel that 
Well, I think so. It, it, it's been estimated, for example, that uh, John Erickson, who designed it, came up with like 40 patentable ideas in this one vessel. And he had a hard time selling it to the Union Navy. Uh, they weren't sure of that. In fact, they insisted that it carry sails. Wow. And he just ignored them. <laughs> As well he should. I think that that revolving turret just changes the nature of naval warfare. You no longer have bit. to come up beside a ship. Uh, you can fire on it from a variety of angles now. Right. It, the, uh, the ability to maneuver the cannon separate from the ship became an important part. And if you look at warships today, that's generally the way they do that. The South uh, always had that same idea that the what, what used to be called the Merrimack, they now call the Virginia. They always built casemates with cannons inside and used them in more or less uh, broadside. But they would have cannons fore and aft because there were no masts again in the way. Right. And usually they could move from porthole to porthole. But they still had to maneuver the ship pretty much to, to direct the cannons in a particular way. The South had a, had a tougher job of it. The Union had all this capacity for building ships. The, uh, the Confederacy didn't. They didn't even have the kind of shipwrights you would need. So they tended to use, like ordinary carpenters, who weren't familiar with building ships. So the designs tended to look like buildings. And it made it easier for the carpenters to work on. Well, it's a good thing they had a frigate at the base to start with. Yes. To build on top of. Yeah. And in fact, the Monitor and the Virginia wind up fighting over the approach to that naval yard, don't they? I'm sorry? The Monitor and the Virginia, they wind up having a celebrated duel. Oh, yes. Hampton Roads. Uh, you have to um, let me set up the situation. Uh, the um, Norfolk Navy Yard uh, is very near what's called Hampton Roads. Where Roads is generally a, a large harbor area where rivers come in. The James River, which flows past Richmond, comes in there. Elizabeth River, and they both meet and go out into Chesapeake Bay. That was being blockaded by the Union. And the Virginia was meant to break that blockade. And they were in a hurry to do it before either the monitor or something else could come along. So like on March 8th, when the, when the ship wasn't even really done, in fact, they thought they were going on a test run, the Virginia went out. This is in 1862, right? I'm sorry? This is in March of 1862. March of 1862, very early in the war. Um, the Virginia went out to attack the Union blockading fleet, which was all wood. Uh, even, in fact, uh, two of the ships were sailing ships. They weren't even steam, the Cumberland and the Congress. And that one day showed very clearly that the idea of using an ironclad was a very effective uh, innovation because the, the Virginia went out and it just rammed the Cumberland and sank it. And then it uh, drove the Congress on shore and burned it, and the Congress blew up later. And the Virginia had very little damage to it. Everything on outside the ship got ripped off because the the Cumberland and the Congress fired at it regularly. The Minnesota, which was a frigate and which was a sister ship of the Merrimack, which I think is kind of ironic, right. fired at it too and did very little damage. Hardly anybody was hurt. There was um, a few casualties on board the Virginia, but like from things like the chain snapping inside a porthole or such. But that may have been the day that uh, the wooden sailing vessel became obsolete in warfare. I think so. And in fact, there were other ships in the area, like I know of, like a French ship, and it was there specifically to watch what would happen once the Virginia actually came out. I mean, 
like I say, that this was no secret. Right. People knew it was coming, but very definitely. And then the Minnesota had gone to the aid of the, of the Congress and the Cumberland because they were sailing vessels and couldn't maneuver independently. The Minnesota ran aground. And the Virginia, after you know, uh, destroying the Cumberland and the Congress, went after the Minnesota, but was told by its pilot, well, you know, it's, it's getting late. We've got to go back to her. We're going to get stuck. We draw as much water as the Minnesota does. So they went back to Norfolk. So there on that first day, the score was uh, ironclads three, traditional vessels zero. <laughs> yes. And they rammed. They, they didn't use the cannon so much as they rammed, you said. Uh, they did. That was the uh, uh, Secretary of the Navy for the Confederacy, Mallory, had that idea. Of you could ram the ships if you were ironclad because you could just uh, run into them. You didn't have to worry about getting shot out of the water. Right. You could get so close to them. And it worked very well. Unfortunately, the ram that the Virginia had on its prow broke off inside the Cumberland, so they couldn't do it again. But they couldn't get as close to the Congress anyway. But they set that one on fire, and then it exploded. So when the first day was over, um, it looked pretty good for the Confederacy and their ironclad. The Confederacy had a big celebration. Uh, there were uh, parties and stuff on the, on shore in Norfolk because they felt that... Uh, well, we're just going to take care of the rest of the, the ships, particularly the Minnesota, which is still stuck in the mud. We'll, we'll destroy that one first and then go after the other ships. And, in fact, uh, even back in Washington, D.C., there was the same kind of assessment. Uh, there's a very famous story about Lincoln and his cabinet getting together, and they're, they're terrified. What if this Merrimack comes up at the Potomac and starts shelling Washington, D.C.? But it didn't, did it? No, it didn't. Not did. to get ahead of your story, but there's another act. Oh, it's, this is, it, it just appeals to me as a novelist. It's sort of like, well, who scripted this? But the monitor shows up that night in the darkness. So the next day when the Virginia... During the party, while the Confederates are partying and celebrating the Virginians, there comes the monitor. Yep. Um, you know, the last-minute rescue, it, it's just a, a great story. The Virginia goes out, and it goes toward the Minnesota, and what's this thing coming around the Minnesota? And they recognize, oh, my gosh, it's the monitor. So they fight, and they fight, and they fight, and they fight. Their battle lasted something like three to four hours, depending on which account you want to read. But essentially, they couldn't hurt each other. The, um, the monitor drew off finally. The, the Virginia hit the pilot house with a shell. It didn't really damage the pilot house, but it blinded the captain, blew all his powder and, and, and um, steel fragments into his eyes, oh. and so they sheared off. And the Virginia thought the monitor had left the battle. So it said, okay, now we'll go after the Minnesota. But the same problem came up as before. The pilot said, well, I can't do that because now the tides are going the wrong way. So it went back. And then the monitor turned around finally. But the Virginia was gone. So it was an interesting situation. Both ships were still capable of fighting, but now they had both kind of drawn off for one reason or another. Did they ever fight again? They never fought again. The Virginia never fought anybody again. The monitor did some shelling of shore installations, but uh, it, it didn't fight again. What happened to the two ships? Uh, the, the, the Virginia... In, in, in service, what happened to the Virginia? Uh, the Virginia uh, met the same fate that many of the Confederate ironclads did. That is, the armies 
have decided the question. The Union Army seized Norfolk, and therefore the Confederates had to blow up the Virginia. And that happened time and again in the Confederacy. They'd spent a lot of time and effort making an ironclad, and then it would either uh, be, have to be sunk or blown up simply because the Army situation had changed so much. The Monitor lasted right until the very end of 62. But it wasn't a seaworthy ship. Monitors were not seaworthy. And it sank in a storm off Cape Hatteras at December 31st, 1862. So it was launched on January 10th, I think, of that year, and it was gone by the end of the year. But there were others along that Oh, way. yes. The, uh, the Union, with its capacity of making ships, uh, pumped out monitors like crazy. They made about 60 or so during the war. And even before the monitor was finished, they'd already had contracts for other ones. There must have been some other battles between ironclads. We we know about the monitor and the Virginia. The monitor and the Virginia. Celebrated, but uh, there must have been others too, weren't there? Yes, uh, the monitor and the Virginia. Uh, uh, there's always a big question of who actually won that battle. But there were some other fights. A good illustration was the the Weehawken and the uh, Atlanta. The Atlanta was a Confederate ironclad. The Weehawken was a Union monitor bigger than the Monitor itself. The name Monitor became generic. It was the name of that first ironclad, but then you talked about Monitors in general. All had that same idea. They had a, a battle. Um, it was uh, <clears throat> uh, the next year, June of 63, mm, uh, at Savannah. The uh, Weehawk and another Monitor, the Nahant, were on blockade duty there, and the Atlanta came out of the Savannah out of Savannah finally to break that blockade. It was over very quickly. The Atlanta fired a few shots and ran aground. The Weehawken fired two shots from 15-inch guns, which were bigger than the monitor was using. The first shot destroyed its pilot house. The second shot shattered an impact, but it blew a hole in the Atlanta. And when that happens, it's really devastating because all the wooden backing, it'd be like say 16 inches of oak behind that and the iron that hit turns into splinters and the one shot killed one man and and wounded uh, say like 18 20 other ones i have to imagine even if the armor and the side of the ship is not pierced that it must have been pretty difficult to be a sailor inside those vessels especially during uh, combat of that sort they they were not comfortable and another thing that you may think about when they when they shot hits the iron, it really rings. There's a concussion. If you're near it, it often knocks you down. Uh, it was uh, not comfortable at all. It's got to be loud, and it's got to be hot in those places, too. Very hot. Uh, the uh, the monitor, for example, during the summer of 62, uh, temperatures inside the monitor reached 120, 140. It was incredibly uncomfortable. When you crank up those steam engines, it must have been even worse. That's right. Well, this has been a fascinating story, Jim. Very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm John Willis, and you've been listening to Civil War Talk Radio.